The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, today our show is about the ACLU and all the great work that they do in privacy protection for our society and our You know, and they let us know and help to make sure that we're being protected in our civil rights. So we have a great guest coming to us from Washington, D.C. Let me tell you a little bit about Jay Stanley. He is a senior privacy analyst with the American Civil Liberties Union in D.C. And he started working on privacy and technology issues at the ACLU five weeks before 9-11. So that was a really, really scary time to start with a lot of privacy issues that came up afterward about, you know, what was going to be collected about our personal information when people were trying to find the terrorists, uh, other terrorists. His role at the ACLU is to help the organizations think through, monitor, and explain the impact of all these new technologies that we're getting and and all how that really affects our privacy and our free speech and other civil liberties. He is the editor of the of ACLU's future, Free Future blog, and he has authored and co-authored a variety of influential ACLU reports and policy papers and blog posts on such topics as government and private sector surveillance, police body cameras, drones, network neutrality, social media monitoring, and, quote, fake news. Um, Before joining the ACLU, he worked as an analyst at the technology research company Forrester Research, and he spent several years in a graduate program in the 20th century American history at University of Virginia, beautiful place. And before that, he worked as an editor and writer for a New York City publishing company. And he's held several technology-oriented jobs. So we're so thrilled to have you join us today, Jay. It's great to be on. Yeah, and I'm wondering, how did you get to be such a techie? I just always loved technology from an early age. I came of age pretty early in the personal computer revolution and um, uh, just always had an affinity for it, but at the same time also had an affinity for, um, you know, social and political questions of our time. So, uh, you know, I, I, I love the job that I have now because it combines both. 
Yes. And you're in such a perfect place to to really have an influence. And boy, do we need you guys now <laughs> with what's going on in our government. So what are some of the big privacy issues that we're really facing now? Well, I mean, there are there are always issues about government access to data, of course. Um, and those were huge during the years after 9-11 and the Bush years and afterwards uh, with Edward Snowden and, and so forth and the NSA. Uh, today, the hot topics in many ways are commercial privacy around Facebook and social media, of course, um, uh, and face recognition, um, issues around how artificial intelligence is going to be used, um, issues around police technology um, and um, police community relations uh, loom large. Uh, and of course, there's always a million new technologies coming out every day, which have potential privacy implications. Yeah. I was looking at one of your blogs about social media blockouts with uh, Sri Lanka. And so kind of share with us what the concern is with the social media blockouts. They they had some of their own concerns of why they did that. But what do you think about that with regard to civil liberties? Yeah. So what happened um, is there was a terrorist attack in Sri Lanka and the government there actually shut down a lot of their social networks, um, ostensibly because they were worried about um, false information circulating, about um, hate groups circulating and riling up violence and so forth. And what I point out in that piece is that uh, what people on the ground in Sri Lanka and in many other countries around the world where governments have resorted to those kinds of tactics, they'd, they'd say that, that those kind of social media blackouts are not effective at actually tamping down violence and rumors and so forth. Mm. But they just leave everybody in the dark because people can't share information about what's happening. They can't reconnect with loved ones. They can't organize in any way. And that generally, um, and, and what we saw after the Sri Lankan thing was a number of American commentators, you know, coming from a point of view of being so sick of American social media and all the ugliness that we see in Facebook and Twitter and so forth, right. saying sympathetic things about those social media blackouts. And, and what our argument was, you should not view these in the sympathetic light. These are authoritarian power moves by authoritarian governments to try and shut down the you know, communications and the sharing of information. Right. And we don't want we don't want Americans to start thinking that those kinds of moves are acceptable in any way because that could eventually come to affect American. Um, you know, we're already seeing enough scary authoritarian things. Uh, we don't need another another one floating in the in the air here. Right. What do you think about Facebook um, kind of saying that they're going to cut out some of the hate speech? How, do, how does that uh, uh, go with what you're talking about with the civil liberties and freedom of speech? I mean, that's a complicated issue. Facebook has a, you know, is a private company and they have the right to, um, to, to set, they have the, the, you know, the legal right to censor, just like the New York Times or the, or the Los Angeles Times or any other newspaper does. Right. Um, but on, on the other hand, they are growing in importance and in, in becoming a very vital forum for our democracy and for how people communicate with each other, with their friends and so forth. Um, And so it's concerning how much power they have, because if, if a scary character, an evil right-wing billionaire were to buy, like one of Trump's friends was to, was to buy Facebook, right? they could have an enormous impact on our political discourse in ways that people couldn't even detect right. just by subtly influencing what information gets shared at a greater rate and what doesn't. And, and we already don't know exactly what Facebook's influence is. I mean, I, I think most people don't think that they're 
I mean, a lot of the conservatives actually are suspicious that Facebook is tilted against them. Um, and that's just a sign that, that we, don't, we just can't tell. And so I think that the key in the long run is to shift more and more control over those kinds. Of, I mean, because nobody wants to see, you know, really ugly violence and, and pornography and, and, and things right. like that, even right. though those things may be protected by the First Amendment. And if right. the government ran Facebook, wouldn't be able to censor them. Nobody wants to see that stuff. And, and nobody wants to see hate speech. So what we need to give those filtering, take those filtering mechanisms out of the centralized hands of Mark Zuckerberg and put them into users' hands so that um, people can be empowered to make those decisions and control those things on their own. Yeah. So I know you've written about fake news. I think that kind of stuff is really scary. We've seen this stuff with Nancy Pelosi with, you know, trying to make her look like she was, you know, drunk. And, um, and that has not been taken down as far as I know um, with Facebook. So what about fake? You know, we have all of this great technology and we have people can do anything with, you know, technology, whether it's with a video or whatever. Um, so what about fake news? What did, you know, what can we do about that without hurting someone's freedom of speech? Yeah, I mean it's a it's it's a real problem because there is the freedom of speech side, and and if you put somebody like Mark Zuckerberg or a government official or what have you in the position to say this is fake and this is fake and this is real, um, then that person has too much power and we too much more power than we want to give anybody in a, a democracy. I mean, there are a lot of things that people used to think were fake that now aren't. Like you know is Right. Is a low carb is a low carb diet fake? <laughs> um, you know, people still argue about that. Right, um, right, right. Uh, and so, who gets to decide? If you ask Donald Trump what's fake news, <laughs> um, you're going to get a much different answer than right. if you ask if you ask me. Right. So, um, uh, that there's a real problem there, and I think part of it will solve itself because people will learn not to trust videos. I mean, I think we already know that you can't necessarily trust a still photograph because we know everybody knows that any, any six year old can Photoshop. Things. Right. And I think we, we, there'll be a process where we come to learn with deep fake videos and, and other altered videos, even just simply slowing it down. Like we saw with Nancy Pelosi one, right. um, you know, people will learn not to trust those videos as much, but, and, and, and also at the, the end of the day, there's going to be a certain proportion of the population that's just either gullible or just wants to pass along things that confirm their beliefs. And I don't think that will ever that will ever stop. So there's no easy solution to the fake news problem. But I think we, you know, there's just no solution except for continuing to push true information. Right, um, right. Well, even, you know, even people. in, you know, the old days, you know, in, in when there was the, you know, the yellow newspaper, so to speak, you know, yeah. I mean, there was always, quote, fake news or people would have try and sell uh, fake elixirs that would, you know, make you healthy or whatever. So I guess there's yeah. always going to be the the gullible and there's always going to be the, the skeptics and then you have to kind of do the research yourself. You know, there was such a backlash with uh, Nancy Pelosi's. Everybody got mad at that. And the fact that um, our president retweeted that, uh, you know, didn't really help him that much. So, you know, um, yeah, although there's probably a good number of Americans who saw the, the doctored Pelosi tape who still haven't heard that it was fake. Right. Right. Um, because, they're trapped in this ecosystem right. of, of sites that continue to yeah. push forth that kind of toxic stuff. 
I know. I mean, it. it you guys have your your uh, your work really cut out for you <laughs> for a long time, I think. So, what yeah. should we do about our privacy online? You know, what what are some suggestions that the ACLU and you have for us? You know, it's interesting because I started working as I said, you know, as you said at the introduction for the ACLU a long time ago in 2001, and we we were focused a lot on government side privacy, but but we've always been concerned about companies and their invasions of our privacy because you know people interact with companies more than they interact with the government, um, but. You know, it's never, and what we've always said is that we need a good, strong, overarching set of privacy protections, like almost every other country has, except right. for the U.S., right. um, every, every other OECD countries, U.S. and Japan. Um, and, but it, it never seemed like anything that had a remote possibility of actually passing a Republican-dominated Congress for, you know, Republicans who have, a, you know, an ideology that is against government regulating private companies. Um, but that has changed remarkably in the past year or so. For the first time, the idea of there being comprehensive overarching privacy laws that puts in place some baseline expectations so that consumers and businesses and everybody knows some basic rules of the law of the road. Like if I give you permission to use my information for one purpose, you can't use it for other purposes um, without asking me again. Um, you know, basic things like that. Um, the possibility that that kind of legislation is going to pass here in Washington is actually getting kind of real. And I, I say there's a couple of reasons for that. One is the Facebook scandals. Right. Where you, you had, the, pro, you had the, the, the sight of Mark Zuckerberg sitting in Congress and Republican congressmen telling him, you need to be regulated. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is the, uh, is, is, is the sweeping privacy law that the European Union has enacted called right. the... Um, uh, blanking on the name. Um, GDPR. Uh, yeah. Thank you, GDPR. <laughs> and then California has also passed a privacy law, which yeah, our California Consumer Privacy Act really is yeah. very similar to GDPR. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, we would like to see it stronger than it was, but the businesses, you know, so business, which has so much political power in Washington, too much. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of the biggest, most powerful businesses, like all the international ones, like Facebook and Google and Microsoft and. Apple. I mean, they have to comply with the GDPR anyway because they're global businesses. Right, right. Um, and even countries outside of Europe are, are following in the footsteps of Europe. So they don't really mind if they just have to do the same thing in the in the U.S. Right. Um, and especially with California, and you know, one in eight Americans is a Californian. Um, right, right. The, uh, uh, you know, so that softens the, the resistance a lot, I think. And and there's a feeling that. All these privacy scandals are giving sort of the industry a bad name, and I think they want to put in place some some protections. We saw the same thing in you know the early 1900s with the meatpacking industry, where the big companies actually asked to be regulated because a lot of scuzzy bottom feeders were doing terrible things and giving the whole industry a bad reputation. And the the you know the big companies knew they could afford to comply anyway. And and the, another thing is, you know, if, if other states are following what our state, um, my beautiful privacy uh, uh, concerned state, um, yeah. you know, if they follow in our in our footsteps, then we're going to have all these companies that have to relate to various privacy laws, which they hate. They'd rather have one federal law then of course you know how we feel in california is every time we create a nice privacy law and it becomes a federal law it gets watered down so that's why yeah. we haven't gotten a security breach law then because we don't want anybody to water it down uh, from what we've got 
So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Cal- California really led the way with your security breach law. Um, and basically, every company in America has to comply with it because, again, one right. in eight of their customers on average lives in California. So, they just, and they're not going to only tell their California customers that they had a breach. They just go ahead and tell them all. So, it basically kind of effectively became a national law. And hopefully, we'll see something similar with California's um, often strong uh, steps on on privacy. Yeah, um, yeah. I think I think that does. You know, be, we lead the way, but then it really does do so much for consumers across the country. So, yeah. Yeah, and you know, pre- preemption is going to be one of the big battles. Yes. I said that you know, businesses are not objecting as strenuously to the idea of consumer privacy legislation in Congress right now, but. They want preemption. Right. They want uh, a not too strong set of privacy protections right. that will stop all the states from passing stronger ones. We want to see as strong as possible at the federal level, but make that whatever the federal level is, make it a floor, not a ceiling, so that individual yeah. states like California can 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 pass stronger protections. And we see that many states have strong prote- stronger than the federal protections in other consumer areas, like right. consumer safety and so forth. So there's no reason they can't do it that way. It's just that the businesses want to inoculate themselves against uh, strong state privacy protections. And we also have, at least right now, although that's probably going to change, we have uh, you know this private right of action that again, federal preemption would just you know deal with that yeah. too. That it wouldn't, there would be no uh, chance for a uh, private right of action. So yeah. you know, you write about face recognition. Let's talk a little bit. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about that because I know that's something that is a little scary. And I, you know, every time I get into my iPhone 10, it recognizes my face, and so do some of my other uh, you know apps. So what about that? Yeah, so that's, as I said, it's one of the big privacy issues right these days that everybody's talking about. Um, technology's been around for a long time. I actually wrote about it in 2001. Um, but uh, it's really ripened and come to its own in recent years, and we're starting to see it used everywhere, um, including on the iPhone 10, which is, you know, it, it's a relatively good use. It's, it's under your control. It's for you. Um, Apple has relatively good privacy policies around that. Um, but... You know, at the same time, face recognition is being used for more and more things. We're seeing CBP using it um, to, at international uh, airline gateways. For yeah, the in the airport all the time. Yeah, it's really the first face recognition checkpoint that we've had that, that we've seen in our society. And you know, the biggest fear is that we turn into a checkpoint society where every camera on every street corner is. Is, is tapped into networks that are face recognition enabled, every body camera, uh, and so on, and that um, it becomes like license plate recognition for our faces and that somebody can put in a photo of us and, and, and get back every video that we've ever appeared in, every time and place we've been spotted, who we've been spotted with, yeah. what we were doing, et cetera, et cetera, in a very automated fashion. Um, and we, you know, we've never seen anything like this in the history of the world. So it's brand new territory. We're not in Kansas anymore. And... Uh, uh, I know. I was you know, just in London. My daughter is uh, living r- there right now and going to school. Uh-huh. And uh, so we were just out there visiting her. And, and my husband and I walked everywhere. You know, in London, you walk everywhere. You take the, yeah. the, the, the tube. And on ev- we saw cameras everywhere. So I was like smiling. You know, and going, oh, my God, look at all of these cameras. <laughs> it was kind of freaking me out. Um, they're everywhere. Yeah, I mean. London is, uh, in England, is known as the country that, you know, aside from, I think, 
China has probably surpassed them, but it was always, has long been known as the country that's really the, the democratic country that has embraced video surveillance more than yeah, any other. Yeah, yeah. Um, so people might say, well, I didn't do anything wrong. What should I worry about? What, what don't they understand? Let's talk about that. Yeah. So, you know, as a privacy, um, as a privacy advocate, you know, that's something that I hear all the time, um, which is, you know, oh, I, why should I care about all these privacy issues? I've never done anything wrong. And so, you know, we have those, there's various answers to that. Um, one is, are you sure you've never done anything wrong? <laughs> um, there are a lot of laws in the book. Right. Um, you know, um, and if some prosecutor, let's say you get falsely accused or mistaken for somebody who's a criminal, and now some prosecutor is going through your life with a fine tooth comb because everything you do is recorded. Right. Um, they're going to, and they, they, they have to save face and charge you with something. So maybe they'll start digging things off about you. Um, second answer is, uh, you know, you may not have anything to hide, but the government might think you do. Right. Um, you, there are errors. Um, you know what I worry you, about? I worry about, you know, identity theft. Like somebody, you know, I don't know, was it in Minority Report or wherever where they're taking the, the facial recognition of Tom Cruise and put it, you know, somewhere where it shouldn't be or something like that? I can't remember. But I worry yeah, about I that as, as an advocate for, for identity uh, theft victims. I could just imagine that with the technology of this, what if somebody like took that facial recognition and put it somewhere where it shouldn't be, you know, where they did this, like we could do that with, you know, Adobe, uh, you know, we were just talking about fake news and, and what you can do with technology with our different media. I worry about that. Like what might they do with my, my facial recognition, put me in London and then maybe put that in something that's a protest or there was actually a protest of Brexit when I was there, and I was um, near Trafalgar Square. And what if they thought that I was involved in that, which I wasn't, you know? So I think that kind yeah. of thing of, of, of kind of putting me in the wrong place at the wrong time when I'm really not there. I'm wondering if even that's possible. Yeah, I mean, that, that is one of the things is that these technologies can be manipulated and, and often because they're computers and they're algorithms instead of human beings. We know human beings are fallible, but we have this bias towards thinking that a computer is somehow objective. Um, and so when they are wrong or when somebody fakes data, people often you know, believe the computer and they won't believe you. Um, uh, and um, uh, you know, one of the issues around face recognition is that it is, there are huge inaccuracies with it as with other identification technologies. And so, um, you know, you may not think that you've done anything wrong, but the government might have you as identified as being on the scene when the drug transaction went down. And now right. you've got somebody knocking on your door with a warrant and they're like going through your, you know, whatever. So uh, and it can, that could be a very frightening experience. And just because your face is in, you know, some database, maybe even the DMV photo database, which a uh, number of states, I think 17, um, allow the FBI to do searches through and face recognition. So now mm -hmm. you're, every time you do one of those searches, you're at risk of being misidentified. And um, I think that's going to be more when, you know, with the real ID, right? Like I need to get my license replaced in December for my birthday, and I'm going to have to get the real ID. So that's going to, isn't that going to be like something with the facial recognition that will be available to, to the federal government, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the Real ID contains various standards for um, 
for exactly what the technological you know standards for um, licenses are, but it does do include photo standards that allow it to be the photos to be more standardized for face recognition. Yeah, yeah, and so I have to do that in my state. I'm going to be required to do that. Everybody, I don't know if every state is doing that, but I think, but I know I have to do that. Everybody else is doing that now too. So when we talk about facial recognition and we talk about surveillance, um, and you, you know, what is wide area surveillance? Yeah, so I have a paper coming out on this and, and video analytics um, next week, and it's basically um, uh, the use of uh, airplanes or drones to put a gigapixel, very, very super resolu- high-resolution camera over a city mm. and basically photograph and track everybody within a 30-square-mile area. And they can zone in on you? They can just zoom in on you? Yeah, and they and they can track every car and every pedestrian and, you know, where Mm. they go um, and what their sort of pattern of life is um, and potentially who they're with. And so that's an enormously powerful surveillance technology. It's been used on overseas battlefields by the U.S. military, but there are a number of companies that are pushing uh, U.S. police forces to put those over American cities. And they actually did a test in Baltimore a few years ago that created uh, a lot of controversy there. but uh, that's you know, kind of worrisome. Is, I'm thinking about if I go in my spa in my backyard at night and I don't wear any clothes because it's my backyard. That's <laughs> but it, it, you know, no one around me can see. But from I always get a little worried when I see helicopters. But a drone can be so tiny, right, that I don't even see it. Yeah, and and not only tiny but cheap, which means that they can put swarms of them over city. Oh, they I mean they can't now because of FAA rules, but as the FAA, which is in the process of doing now, loosens the safety rules around drones so that they can fly beyond line of sight, potentially over 400 feet, which is currently the limit, um, fly at night, then we may see police forces and potentially companies, um, you know, really engaging in um, routine mass aerial surveillance, kind of watching everybody all the time if we don't put in place some, some rules um, to, to, to stop that. And I think that um, the technology is here for that. And <sighs> the only thing that's holding it back right now is the FAA. Oh, big brother. Well, we have about two minutes. I just want you to tell um, my audience what, you know, what you guys are doing real quickly and, you know, how they can find out more, you know, on your website. Yeah. So we're working hard to try and, and, and make technology something that empowers us, that empowers individuals, gives us more choices, does cool things for us, and not just increases the power of big companies and and spooky government agencies over us um, so that we don't live in a society where we're from the minute we leave our house in the morning until we get back at night, we feel like there's an eye in the sky or an eye in the building Mm. or or, or our cell phones that are are watching our every move. and, you know, we're lobbying. We have lobbyists in the California state legislature and lobbyists in Washington and in most states. And we are, you know, we're doing public education to try and, you know, educate people so that they know the directions technology is going. Um, and you're and, nonprofit, so people can donate and they can use that as one of their charities to protect them, right? Yeah, yeah, aclu.org. And we have a, I have a blog called Free Future that, 
specialize in technology, but we also have information about lots of other issues that we work on. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we need support, not just financial support, but also um, support in writing to your representatives to help, to help us strengthen uh, the lobbying as we push for good checks and balances and protections against all of these technologies. Right, and, and, have, and I, I know, and and people can sign up for the newsletter at aclu.org. I get the newsletter, and when they ask me to, you know, get, you know, sign, you know, online, I do that for things that I'm worried about, whether it's abortion uh, rights or whatever, whatever it is, uh, surveillance uh, concerns, whatever. So this is a great thing. So we're just out of time now, though. I want to thank you so much. Uh, we've been talking with Jay Stanley, who's a senior privacy analyst with the American Civil Liberties Union, does great work. We got to have you back again to talk about all the wonderful things that you're doing. So uh, yeah, thank you so much. Great talking to you. Thank okay, you. we'll talk to you again soon. You take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at privacypiracy.org. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.